Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles for optimising human performance. I am Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we're joined by adventure athlete and mountaineer, Adri Brownlee. Adri is just back in the UK after successfully summiting Mount Everest, and she has now set her sights on summiting all 14 8,000-metre mountains in the world. If she achieves this in the time frame that she's set for herself, she will be the youngest person ever to achieve this by around seven years. In this episode, Adria and I discuss her experiences on Mount Everest, the dangers of mountaineering, and how you can start your own mountaineering journey. As always, follow and subscribe to The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, or wherever you download your podcasts. And while you're there, please check out all of our other content. Here is Adri Brownlee. Hi, Adri. Welcome to The Progress Theory. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to all of the stories that I'm sure you're about to say. <laughs> yeah, there are quite a few. <laughs> you've just got back. You've stopped quarantine, right? You were in quarantine since you've been back from Everest, but you're now out? Yeah, so I had sort of five days at home to <laughs> get my life sorted out and I'm free and going out every day as much as possible because I just don't like being inside. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine having all that freedom being outside for so long and then all of a sudden being stuck in a house must feel really awful in comparison yeah no, it's horrible it's just like it's claustrophobic and uh, awful not fun <laughs> yeah yeah well let's i think we should start there tell us where you've been yeah so i was in well it all sort of started about six months ago my traveling and i went to pakistan for a kg winter expedition I was there for about a month and a half and then I flew straight to Nepal for about two months of relaxation and then a month or two of, of climbing Everest. So yeah, that's been the recent travels. <laughs> wow. So when you say relaxation, are you like chilling in Kathmandu or it's the beginning part where you're going to like base camp and then you've got to stay in base camp for a while? Is that right? To like acclimatize before you then, you know, start heading up the mountain? Yeah, so those two months I was meant to go home. It's, but because of like lockdown in the UK, I didn't know if uh-huh. I was going to be able to come out again. So I thought the best thing to do would just go straight to Nepal, you know, just explore Kathmandu while I have the chance. And it was honestly, it was the most amazing two months of my life. Like every day was just like partying, like having fun, doing whatever. Like I had all my friends there as well. I met new people, which was amazing. And then I also got a chance to try out paragliding. So oh, I did cool. like a 15-day course in this little town called Pokhara, which is like outside mm. Kathmandu, which was 
it was just like spectacular and like paragliding has become my new obsession which is a bit dangerous because it's expensive as well and <laughs> I've already got mountaineering so my parents are like please don't get into that <laughs> putting their pockets out with like sad faces on yeah yeah Kathmandu is lively isn't it like uh, my wife and I have been there when we did the Everest base camp finished the trek came back and just went out and it's it's really really lively it's amazing isn't it yeah, no, it's incredible. Like, there's the town Tamil, which is, like, the party town. Mm. And it's literally, like, it's like being in central London. It's crazy. Like, there's people walking around the streets, drinking. Like, all the pubs are blasting out their music. It's a really good vibe out there. But it's sort of like, it's like Marmite, really. Like, you either love it or you hate it. And I know quite a lot of people hate Kathmandu, but I just think really? it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine. I can't imagine hating Kathmandu. I know it can be a bit busy, especially through those streets, but it's so colourful. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. And like you said, lively. Just Yeah, and the culture as well. I was there for Holy Festival, and that mm. was, like, the most incredible day of my life. Like, just the colours, the people. Like, it was meant to be sort of COVID safety, and but that went out the window. And you had people really? touching your face the whole time, and, like, it was yeah. just so much fun. <laughs> well, apart from the fact that you love mountaineering, what are you doing out climbing Everest? There's a particular challenge, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, like, it's been, like, my dream since I was, I don't know, 15 years old, I guess, when I sort of started getting into this properly. So, yeah, I've just always wanted to climb Everest. And I know my dad did as well, which is a bit annoying because I wanted to climb with him, but that just didn't happen. But, yeah, it's just always been something I've wanted to do. Now I've done it, and <laughs> it's a bit like, oh, what's next? But, I mean, obviously I have my big mission to, to do. Mm. So, Do you want to explain what the big mission is? Yeah, so my challenge is to climb all 14 8,000-metre peaks and hopefully be the youngest to do so. Because the current record is 30 years old, which is held by Mingma David, who's like sort of Nimstai's partner. He's an absolute legend. I was on KT Winter with him and Everest. So I feel kind of bad trying to break his record, but it's got to be done by someone. <laughs> Happy if it's someone he knows, that's a good friend that's yeah, going for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that's the plan. So I'll probably aim to do it in about three to four years, depending on how many... I can fit in by the end of this year, really. So it's COVID that's slowing down the challenge in a way and the travel. And yeah, and also just trying to find groups that are actually going to be on the mountain and, you know, seasons where you don't particularly want to climb that mountain. So, like, for example, in the winter, you don't really do any of the 8,000-metre peaks, but, you know, you can mm. do Choi Yu if you have a good group of Sherpas and they're willing to fix the ropes for you. So it's just about managing that and trying to fit in as many as possible in this short time frame. Yeah. And Choi Oyu, that's, isn't that the sixth highest mountain in the world? But it's often seen as one of the easier 8,000-metre peaks. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the easier ones. Yeah, a few of them are relatively easier than Everest and and there are obviously ones that are harder than Everest too like K2 Annapurna so yeah I'm excited to try those out yeah I'm sure I've, I've seen like newspaper reports or I think it was probably a YouTube video knowing me but that I think it's isn't it like one or th one in three don't make it to the top of K2 and Annapurna like they're really quite dangerous yeah I think it's like well, for K2, it's like one in four people die. 
oh, right, mother, okay. <laughs> which is like, I mean, yeah, scary figures. And when I was on the Keishi winter, it was definitely obvious why those figures were there. Like, I mean, like obviously we had, it was, I think it was five deaths on Keishi winter. And yeah, it was quite freaky actually. Like it sort of put things into perspective, like how easily mm. these things happen. And they were all super experienced climbers especially sergi the spanish guy like he's like the top climber in spain and it's just one simple mistake and he was gone so yeah they're, they're scary statistics wow. but you know they're true and you got to respect them so when you say kt winter you were there doing kt winter weren't you so did yeah, those yeah, five people true. pass away when you were there as well so the three guys jp ali and john snorri they were in a team together. They went for their summit push once we had left. So they went missing after. But the other two, they both died while we were there. And we were actually, myself and Sandro, the cameraman for our team, we were at advanced base camp searching mm. for Nims Dye's stuff from that blew away from camp two. The day after, exactly the same time, Sergi fell from camp one all the way to ABC. So if we were there 24 hours later, we would have seen the whole thing, which is, that would have been like awful. So yeah, it was quite scary though. It was so close. And like, you see everything happen, like you see them carrying the body and like all these things. And yeah, it's not nice to see, but one of the key things about mountaineering is you have to block those out or else you start doubting yourself which I kind of did after those deaths I was asked by NIMS if I wanted to go up further to sort of camp two camp three and I was perfectly capable of doing it and I was really excited to but after those deaths I was just like no way I'm not doing that like this is way too risky like this is my first 8,000 meter experience and I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> Imagine your first 8,000 meter <laughs> climb ends up being the most difficult 8,000 metre mountain of all. I know. So you, you were there in K2 for training for the Everest push, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it's just like the most extreme training I could do, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and it was also nice to be a part of the team that I was going to be, that I'm going to be doing most of my climbs with and just getting to know them on like a more personal level. And they're like my closest friends now. Like some of them I'd yeah. even call my family. Like they're just so, such an like, incredible bunch of people. Like they're so amazing and friendly and like up for a laugh. So that was really yeah. cool. Yeah. It's a good reflection on the Nepalese people, the Sherpas. They're just, they're the most friendly people on earth, aren't they? Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How many of the uh, 8,000 metre peaks have you done so far? So Everest was the first one. And then I was supposed to do Lotse after Everest, but that didn't happen because there was way too much snowfall on the Lotse face. And like there was avalanche risk and for our Sherpas to trailblaze and take out the rope on their own would just be way too mm. difficult. So we decided to call that one off and we'd already done enough, you know, climbing Everest. <laughs> yeah, you must have been exhausted. It was a big achievement on its own, so. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Lotsey face? Because just for anyone that's not familiar, I, it was a bit unfamiliar with mountaineering. That's a particularly key part of the climb for both Everest and Lotsey, right? And it's something that can change a lot and it's incredibly risky, right? Yeah, so the Lotsey face was, I mean, this year was much shorter than previous years from what I've heard, mm. but it's basically like a sort of 70 degree face and it takes about 
two to three hours to climb. Well, to, to camp three anyway, it takes two to three hours. And that bit's, it's not too difficult. You know, you just got to put one foot in front of the other and you're sort of pulling yourself up with the Juma. So it's, yeah, it's not too bad. But then after camp three, the Lotsi phase carries on and that's, that's like a five hour push and that's pretty difficult. But I'd say like the most difficult part of all is the Kumbu Icefall. Which I think is that, might, the that might be what I was thinking of, the Kumbu yeah, Icefall. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of the risky part where you have to travel through at night and it's always changing. You can hear the, the grumbles of the ice like in the night. It's not fun. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's grueling. It's sort of the first time we did it, it took us about nine hours to get through. And it's just wow. constantly like up, down, pulling yourself up on like vertical walls with your Juma. It's, yeah, it requires a lot of concentration and a lot of, a lot of fitness as well. Like loads of people mm. underestimate it and think this is going to be a breeze, but you have to be pretty fit to get through that. So yeah, that was definitely the most difficult bit. And coming down was scary because after our summit push, it was really late in the season, which is when the kombu is the worst and because it gets hotter during the days. And we were coming through at about 10 in the morning, which is already quite warm. The sun's out and like you're just walking along these crevasses and like these like little thin bits of ice like about this thick and you just hit like suddenly hear like a massive like grumble like under hmm. the ice and you're like Shh, like we need to get out of here like we start yeah. running it was, yeah it's scary but you know you just got to get through it and not think about those things mm. is it the technical side which makes a mountain particularly difficult or is it a combination of the technical side the altitude the the weather so like why is the Kumbu Icefall so dangerous. Why is K2 seen as one of the most dangerous mountains out of all the 8,000 metre peaks? Yeah, so like each sort of 8,000 that has its own like difficulty. So like mm. some might be the weather, so rapidly changing weather. So K2 is like this. You can never predict what the weather's going to be like because it just changes like all the time just because of where it's situated. And it's also incredibly steep. So it's... There's some parts that are technical, like the bottleneck, which is, that's really difficult, especially at altitude. You're using your crampons and rock and it's vertical. But yeah, it's the steepness and the changing weather, just they're dangerous. So that's what makes it difficult. And then with Everest, the the dangerous part is the Kumbu Icefall. And it's also, tech, it's not technical, it's just like it's draining because it's so long and mentally it's it's awful because you're just going up and down and you're like it's never end like when is this going to end and you think you've reached the end and it just goes down and up again you're like yeah. bloody hell when is this going to finish but yeah it just depends on the mountain really they each have their own sort of easy parts and difficult parts certainly i know i wanted to touch on on this but I, uh, and a number of questions have come in from listeners that have focused on this area but this is all really dangerous. As soon as you reach the top, it's getting more and more dangerous. What's your mindset approach to all this? How do you just keep one foot in front of the other? Do you just shut everything out? I think people are very interested to see what's stopping you going, nah, screw this, I'm getting back down. Yeah, see, so, I mean, like the main thing for me on summit day is just not thinking about how far away the summit is because as soon as you think like that, you just you're just like, what the hell, I can't do this. Like if you, if someone said to you, you've got to get on the step machine for 10 hours, you're just going to be like, no, no way. But it's the same with Summit Push. You're basically on a step machine for 10 hours doing the same thing. 
So you just got to put it into small chunks and think, okay, like I'm 200 meters from this point. Like it's not too far, maybe a couple of hours manageable and then you get a break. So you have to have that sort of that thinking or else you're just never going to, you're going to give up because it is a long day. And then you also have to think about the positives rather than the negatives. So a lot of people start thinking about, you know, my fingers are freezing or like Hmm. it's so far away or there's a queue, blah, blah. You you just go in this negative cycle. But if you think about the positives, like, oh, you know, like I actually overtook this massive group of people. I must be going pretty fast or I'm only 10 meters away from the balcony. And this is pretty good progress. And then you sort of you get that energy, that surge of energy, like that positivity drives you. That's mm. the most important thing on summer day. You can't doubt yourself because you're just not going to make it. And one of our teammates started doing that. And he said, to, he turned around to Nims, he's like, I can't do this. Like, this is, like, I can't. And we all knew that he was totally capable. And Nims just turned around, he's like, get up right now, get up that mountain. <laughs> like, I'm not having anyone quit on me. So he pretty much just took him up and didn't let him give up. But, you know, you just have to have that positive mentality. Sounds like focusing on little small goals that have such a positive influence. And once you start adding them all up, sort of blocks out all the negativity that could be generated that you could focus on. And it must be great having... So NIMS is... Sorry, it's NIMS a Persia, isn't that right? NIMS NIMS die Persia. Yeah, yeah. The uh, what was his? Because he's a world record holder, isn't he? And uh, and quite a famous author now. Yeah. So he's so he was the leader in our group, and I mean he's such an epic guy. You know he's done all these amazing achievements, and everyone looks up to him. So having him on the team as our sort of guide, it was incredible. And you know he knows what he's doing, and you can tell that he knows what he's doing. And he makes sure that you know that as well. So if you do anything yourself, it's probably going to be wrong. But yeah, no, he's a great guy and it's an honour to be able to climb with him. How did you get involved with his group? That's a really cool thing. Um, yeah, I mean, so when my original plans for Everest got cancelled, um, that was like almost two years ago now, I phoned him up and I asked him, what are you doing? What are your plans? And he had an expedition going in October. So I sort of joined on to that because I didn't want to wait another year for Everest. Mm. I like trained my ass off to get to that point. And I was like, another year of this, like no way. And then that also got cancelled. So he's phoned me up and he's like, you know what, why don't you join the KG Winter Expedition and use it as a training expedition for Everest and get to know the team so I was like, of course, like, why not? So that's how I sort of got into it all. And then, like, he obviously saw potential in me. And one day he just came into my tent and he you should do the 14 8,000ers. Like, you can do it easily. Wow. And you'd be the youngest. And so I was like, okay, sure, why not? Mm. I've heard him speak on several podcasts and he always comes across as so positive. So he, he has such a positive belief in himself. And he clearly doesn't just keep it to himself. He tries to impart that positivity to others to really help them achieve their goals yeah no he's yeah he's a great guy and he knows how to get people up a mountain basically like he's great at it and so did you did you know him before you called him up i knew of him just Mm. because like the mountaineering world if you're in climbing and so i knew that he had a company that did guided expeditions so 
I thought I'd call him up and hope for the best. That is wicked. That's, that's great advice for anyone that's actually looking to do something similar, wants to climb Everest or any of the other 8,000 metre peaks. What's next? Which one? Because you've got the big one out of the way. Which one do you think's next? <laughs> so next will be Manaslu in mm-hmm. September. And hopefully I'll do that without oxygen. Just because okay. it's one of the easier ones. So it's a good one to sort of explore the no oxygen side to mountaineering on and following Everest I felt really good on Everest and I think obviously I'll be a bit slower but I do think I could do it without oxygen so yeah I just want to give that a chance and then if I raise enough funds in the time between now and September I'll try to do Dalagiri as well after Manaslu so sort of fly straight from Manaslu base camp to Dalagiri base camp and Mm. climb up that as well but I need to get the funds first, so yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, sure. certainly. Are you leaving a particular mountain till last? No, just whatever is a whatever I can climb, I'll climb, kind yeah, of thing. Because yeah. obviously, I want to do it as fast as yeah. I can. So, it's not like K two was like, oh, that was a that was an interesting experience while I was there. I'll leave that one till last, and it'll be a big, big ending. But really, it's just get me up those mountains. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so. Would you be able to explain in a little bit more detail as to the importance of oxygen? So when you said, I'm going to attempt Manaslu without oxygen, I was like, whoa, that's, that's really quite big. Like why is oxygen or achieving an 8,000 meter peak without oxygen such a big deal? Yeah, so I mean, once you get above 8,000 meters, you're in the death zone and it's called the death zone because you don't have the same pressure as you would at sea level and there's you know less oxygen coming into your body and you know your muscles and organs need oxygen to function so you're slowly dying really so the purpose of the supplementary oxygen is to slow down that process pretty much and it gives you that extra energy it keeps your muscles going keeps the red blood cells moving around and Without it, it's just you're naturally letting your body die and you're a lot more tired, you're a lot slower and you're also a lot colder, which is one of the big issues, frostbite. Because mm. I could tell as soon as they were changing my oxygen tanks at the balcony, they take it off and you, you start shivering. You're like, God, it's bloody cold. And then they put it back and they change it all and then slowly your body wow. warms up again. So it's crazy how much of a difference it does make to your body. And lots of people die because they're waiting around and they're not on oxygen and they just freeze to death. Wow, that's insane. Did you experience really bad cues on Everest? No, no not one cue at all, actually. Um, it was pretty quiet. And I mean, it was just, there weren't that many people going for the summit at the same time this year i mean the weather windows were awful this year there was sort of three chances to go and they were all really short and the first one was really early in the season so no like not many people could go because there weren't enough oxygen tanks up there so yeah there weren't many people going for the summit when we were going and we went quite early so we were the first out of camp four so we we weren't stuck behind people so i was pretty lucky actually was base camp still busy just up up the top not so busy because people are finding it hard to judge when the weather window is yeah i mean it was busy in terms of there were loads of tents everywhere but there was just no one around and because of covid (laughs) you couldn't mingle with other base camps so you Mm. had to stay in your own base camp and follow all the precautions so we didn't get a chance to really talk to other groups or anything 
it was really weird. Like, it was eerie almost. Like, you'd walk through base camp and it would just be, like, a couple of people here and there. But, yeah, it, it wasn't, like, the usual bustling sort of town that it is. And I would love to go back. I mean, I will because I need to do lots of go back and see what it's like without COVID. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. It would be really good to discuss what your training was like for these attempts. Because the way you described the Kumbu Icefall and how it takes a lot of people off guard, you need to be really quite physically fit for it. How did you physically prepare yourself for for an 8,000 metre ascent? Yeah, so most of my training was sort of VO2 max focus. So trying to increase that as much as possible. So I do a lot of cardio and I'm not really into weight training. So that was more of a chore for me. My usual day would consist of about, you know, one to two hours of intense cardio so maybe going on the step machine for an hour with a 15 kg backpack or running up and down the stairs in my apartment block with you know the oxygen masks just doing those kind of things which are really tailored specifically to mountaineering and the oxygen mask actually really helps not with my fitness but with the sort of mental side of learning how to breathe with restricted oxygen and that was great like I could tell that it helps me on the mountain because when you wear the oxygen mask on an 8,000 meter peak at first it just feels like a burden really because you're not getting that much oxygen in and it's just uncomfortable like you have to really suck in the air and so that really helped and then I'd also go on the weekends I'd go to Box Hill and do trail running for a few hours and then Every day I'd do a bit of weight training, so target a specific area and focus on that. But that was the hardest bit for me. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's long, steady state type of endurance training mixed in with movements that are going to be very similar to what you'll experience on the mountain. So sort of extended step-ups, lunges, and then once you've got a bit more time, like the weekend, you go find the hills, if you know what I mean, and do your aerobic training there. Yeah, and a lot of swimming as well, actually. Sort of in the last month, I did like loads of swimming because it's just so good for your breathing as well and learning how to get into a like proper breathing pattern. And it's just a great exercise, like aerobic fitness-wise. So, yeah, that, mm. was, that was fun. It's changed up a little bit. <laughs> how, how do you find the altitude? Because when we first met was when your dad got in contact with us at St Mary's. Uh, and we brought you and your dad in to have a go on the in the altitude chamber. And I remember both you and your dad were jogging at the height of roughly Everest Base Camp, which is about 5,300 metres. So yep. clearly there was something there, maybe it's genetic, where you both were just, you could deal with low oxygen quite well. Yeah, I mean, so the first going from camp, two to camp three was the first time I went above 7,000 meters which is where you really start to feel it well I actually didn't feel it ironically I felt amazing up there like I was dancing around with with Mike Posner and yeah it was an incredible feeling I felt super strong and super positive like obviously it's harder to breathe you, you walk about five steps and you're out of breath hmm. but sort of no headaches no illness nothing like that so it was all it was all the expected, really, um, which is really lucky. So, yeah, and on Summit Push as well, you're on oxygen the whole time. So the breathing side of it isn't very difficult because it almost feels like you're breathing normally. And then 
so yeah, no, I was I was super lucky with the altitude and hopefully touch wood, my genetics are on my side when it comes to mountaineering and it will stay like that throughout the throughout the mission. Yeah. It's really, really quite impressive. You have clearly sort of built for this and it's great that you found like your passion so early on and turning that passion into technically something that's gonna well, achieve a world record as the youngest person to ever summit all eight thousand meter peaks. And you'll break it by seven years. So it's really quite impressive. <laughs> what would your recommendations be for anyone that wants to get into mountaineering, especially at that level? Yeah, I mean, I'd say, obviously, start small and do some some peaks in the UK. Find out if you actually do really enjoy that kind of the sport and then go from there. You know, try out something in the Alps, do Mont Blanc, so those easier things. And then start working up technically to maybe the Matterhorn or something like that, which is testing other sides of mountaineering. Because there are so many different avenues that you can go down. You can do sort of alpine stuff. You can do more technical climbing, ice climbing, whatever. <laughs> it's, there's so many different choices. So just finding out which one suits you best and going from there i mean everyone can do mountaineering it's not a it's one of those sports that you don't have to be a pro you don't have to be super fit you, you can like pick and choose really and choose the mountains that that are that are good for you and that you that are manageable for you so yeah it's really it's that's why i love mountaineering so much because it's so like broad and you don't have to do you know what everyone else does yeah, definitely. I guess for some people getting into mountaineering, the thing is difficult is is money. Like you said earlier, that it's an expensive sport. What kind of tips would you have for someone that maybe might be looking for sponsorship to try and help with their mountaineering dream? Yeah, so the, I mean, so to get sponsors, you have to have that story that makes you unique and also makes you exciting so that mm. people actually want to invest in you and they believe in you. And it's really, really difficult. I mean, I'm struggling right now. You know, my story might not be the most amazing, but there is a story there, being the youngest mm. to do this. And I've still, I ha I've got interest, but I haven't got financial support. And especially with COVID, as soon as you say like money, they hide away and they're like, no way. I'll give you product, but no money. So yeah, you just got to get your story out there and you got to really connect with the brand and tell them what you can do, what you can offer them as a person, you know, doing, whether it's media or doing talks for them, you've got to make it really personal to them or else they're just going to be like, okay, whatever. And then also, I think the biggest thing is having personal contacts. Personal contacts you can communicate with and you can share your passion with them. Whereas just cold calling people, trying to tell them your story, they just don't connect with you and they don't understand what it is really. So they don't want to give you money. So yeah, the best way is to, to find personal contacts or a friend of a friend might know someone. That's the easiest way. I mean, getting product is simple, like, but getting money is just, it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's something that takes practice, takes time around building your network uh, and finding, I don't want to say finding your own brand, but finding your own stance as to what makes you which makes you different, that's going to help you achieve something that no one else can achieve. I guess that's what would separate you from the rest, would you say? I mean, yeah. what, what you've described is, you know, I think, no, I think it really makes you stand out. Like you're going for a world record. 
you're breaking that world record by like seven years. Uh, and so if you are struggling to try and gain sponsors, it could be quite difficult for someone else. But I guess it's if they can develop that brand about themselves and that story, that is only going to help them and put them in a better place to achieve that. Yeah, and you, have, you also have to have like a bigger motive as well. So either women empowerment or sustainability or one of those broad topics, you have to be interested in that and you have to be able to promote that as well because loads of brands are getting into that. So like at the moment, I'm trying to talk to North Face and their whole thing for 2022 is female empowerment. So I have to make sure that I really put the point across that I'm super excited about that and like really promoting that which I am so that's why I sort of picked them as my main target but that's really important as well because you can't just be yourself anymore you have to have a bigger purpose than just my mission my this my that they don't care about that I guess that's quite good because that's something you clearly are passionate about as well it isn't like oh I love mountains I want to climb I need to find something to attach to myself yeah like you're very passionate about female empowerment anyway so it's just great to see that you've got two things you're really passionate about that you can mix together yeah exactly like it's it's so nice to be able to promote something that yeah that I'm passionate about in my mountaineering and be able to use my platform and my social media to do that it's really exciting so yeah I'm looking forward to you know gaining more followers and creating my personal brand and being able to do like bigger things like talks and like yourself doing podcasts and stuff like that yeah certainly well if anyone wants to help contribute or help develop that network further how can they contact you or how can they help with sponsorship um yeah so i mean i have a website which is just adrianabrownley.com um and on there you can find all my contact like information and stuff So you can contact me through there or through any social media, really, like Instagram or something like that. I mean, that's the new way to do it, isn't it? So I think email's a bit outdated now. So yeah, just any of those ways, really. Oh, cool. Yeah, if anyone that's listening wants to help contribute to that, yeah, or has anyone that they think they would be interested in helping Adri with her her goals, please definitely get in touch. Uh, Just to finish off, let's, let's finish off with some listener questions. So... First one was uh, from Kieran Moore. Do you think your challenge will be more mentally or physically challenging? Yeah, so definitely more mentally challenging. You can you can train your physical side and you can be the fittest person on that mountain, but it's your mind that's going to let you down first. And it's not something that you can... I mean, you can train your mind and there are different courses you can do and all this stuff, but to a certain extent, and it's sort of your mentality is to some degree something that you're born with almost. Um, and if you just don't have that drive and that passion, then you're not going to you're not going to get anywhere on the mountain. You've got to absolutely love what you're doing or else your mind's just going to be like, why are you doing this? Just stop. And then you're going to turn back. So, yeah, it's definitely more of a mental thing than a physical. Yeah, I can completely understand that one. The next one is kind of linked into what we've just been talking about regarding funding. It's from Harry Basin. How did you find funding at the start? But I think the interesting part of the question is here, that actually is were you taken seriously as being so young? But it sounds like you being so young is the attractive part about your challenge, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, up till now, I've been super lucky to have my parents 
you know, support me through financially throughout my expeditions. And after Everest was, you know, the stop point and they're like, hey, you have to do it yourself. So I've had to raise the funds for Manaslu all on my own, which has been really tough because I've never done this sort of thing before. So I didn't even know where to start. Yeah, I think like being young is a major part of my story. It's something that I can also use in for these brands to to reach to their younger generations and, you know, put the point across out there that it doesn't really matter what age you are, you can do these things. So yeah, I think age is sort of, it helps. It's, it's an age rather than something that people are afraid of or, yeah, they, I mean, I'm not too young, so <laughs> hopefully they don't, you know, see me as like a young child who's not going to be able to do anything for their brand. But yeah, I mean, I haven't really, re- like, I haven't felt that way so far um, and hopefully I won't. But yeah, you never know. <laughs> it hasn't been a limiting factor so far, so no, you know, no. shouldn't be. And then the final one is from Sam Ross, who is actually a climber himself. And it's more about your equipment. Is your entire clothing sleep system synthetic? Yeah, so I guess he's seen that I've been sponsored by Save the Duck, which is all about being animal cruelty free and not using sort of down in their in their materials. I mean, I would love to be using all sort of plum tech, which is what they use instead of down. But, you know, you just can't. The tech isn't there. And for sleeping bags especially, like, you just, you can't not use down at the moment. It's it's what's going to keep you the warmest. So, yeah, that's that's unfortunate. And I guess one day it will get there. And I'm sure, like, the likes of North Face and Rab are working on it. Because, I mean, nowadays it's all about being sort of vegan and animal cruelty free and being sustainable so yeah hopefully someday it will happen but at the moment no like most of my clothing is from rab and stuff save the duck don't make everything but they have actually just got a down suit from them which is super cool so that's got no absolutely no like goose down in it at all so i'm really excited to wear that on manisley yeah i definitely check that out that's at save the duck is that right on instagram yeah cool i'll definitely check that out Brilliant. Well, Adri, thank you so much for coming on The Progress Theory. Everyone that's listening, please check out her website and check her out on Instagram as well. And you'll be able to see what happens next. Adri, thank you so much. That's brilliant. And I'm so jealous. And I just want to literally go back and see see what my bank balance is looking like to see if my wife and I can go back climbing anytime soon. But (laughs) probably not. But yeah, I definitely miss the mountains. So thank you for all of those stories. That was brilliant. No worries. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thanks, Adri. Thank you, Adri Brownlee, for coming on to The Progress Theory and talking about her mountaineering experiences and her upcoming world record-breaking challenge. Even though she has just started the challenge, you can clearly tell she's gained a lot of experience, especially during her time with the group led by Nims Perja, who climbed K2 in winter. If someone as experienced as Nimsdai think you have the potential to break mountaineering world records, you clearly have some talent. I just wanted to provide some final thoughts on key areas which really stood out to me. Firstly, and as this is a sports science show, what stood out to me was Adri's training for mountaineering. I loved the simplicity of it. The majority of the training focused around aerobic conditioning, usually running, hill work, or even running up and down stairs, which makes sense as the body needs to be efficient at utilizing oxygen. With less O2 available up high in the mountains, the body needs to be effective in utilizing the O2 it can get. 
And while there is no direct link between a high VO2 max and your ability to handle high altitude, a high functioning respiratory system is still needed to tolerate submaximal exercise over very long periods. And secondly, Adri appears to have a really strong mindset. Five top climbers died during her time in K2 during winter. She witnessed this firsthand as a relative novice, yet it has not deterred her at all and it led her to a very comfortable Mount Everest descent only months later. It must take such a strong mindset to ignore past negative experiences when you're tired and you're still climbing after nine hours. Yet this seems to come easy to her. Clearly, she is both mentally and physically well-equipped for a career in mountaineering. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode and it gave you enough information on how to start your own mountaineering journey if it is something that has been on your bucket list for years. It would be awesome if you could also leave us a review and share this episode on your Insta story to help grow the show. And head to our website, theprogresstheory.com and listen to our other episodes. We'll see you in the next one. Thank you.